You're listening to episode 151 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Cheng. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Cheng, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? I am so excited to finally release Susie Townsend's episode today. I asked Susie if she was comfortable sharing examples of killer query letters during our conversation, and I completely dropped the ball and got so sidetracked during our call that I forgot to ask her about the query letter examples that she prepared. Not only was she kind enough to hop on a second call, which you'll notice is stitched to the end of her episode, but she also emailed me six examples of the top query letters that stood out to her And she even included personal notes as to why she loves each of them so that our community could keep it as a handy resource. I transfer them over to a beautiful 14-page presentation that you can download over in her show notes page. Just head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Susie dash Townsend and scroll down. A huge heartfelt thank you to Susie for putting this together for us. I am so pumped for the community to have access to this. Before we jump right into her intro, I also wanted to share that I'm adding early access to interviews for our super storytellers who sign up for our Patreon membership to show tangible support at the $8.88 tier or higher. That $8.88 tier is called Silky Chickens with Balloons, just because it's adorable. So how exactly does this early access work? These files are just the edited interview itself. To give you the earliest access possible, I won't be adding the introduction, the ending, or the jingle music that's usually stitched in during post-production. Depending on how my schedule looks for the month, you'll get access to interviews as early as a month in advance. And if I'm super busy, I may upload the interview a few days before the official air date. But no matter what, you'll get to hear all upcoming episodes before anyone else does. I'll be releasing early access to interviews with upcoming guests like Maureen Johnson and actor Doreen Missick for patrons in the Silky Chickens with Balloons and higher. If you're wondering how you can best show your support for 88 Cups of Tea, this is honestly the best way right now. Head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up at the $8.88 tier or higher and you'll receive these early access interviews on top of all the other cool benefits. Again, that's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. If you'd love to show support in another way, I'd be so grateful if you could head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our show, and give us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners, and every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea, so thank you so much in advance. On to the next announcement. In early October, I announced the official launch of our Patreon membership and rang in celebrations by hosting the final contest of the year where one lucky winner would be featured in an eight-minute interview to chat about their writing journey, and it would be aired right after today's conversation with Susie. I am so thrilled to share that Caitlin Duncan is the winner, and be sure to stay tuned to learn more about your fellow storyteller. Thank you again to all of you who joined the celebrations by entering the contest. All right, so today we have with us Susie Townsend, your most requested guest, who's also a super talented literary agent over at New Leaf Literary and Media. Susie loves women's fiction and all subgenres of romance, fantasy, and crime fiction. She also represents children's fiction and particularly loves YA and middle grade. 
Some of Susie's best-known projects include number one New York Times bestseller Red Queen by Victoria Avier, who was also an 88 Cups of Tea guest, and many, many more. Today, Susie tells us a story about how she fell in love with storytelling and the fantasy world, and her journey to becoming a literary agent. We get into the nail-biting story of when she sold her first manuscript, how she lovingly pitches books to editors, and a ton more. Don't forget to look out for the incredible query letter tips that will catch the attention of literary agents. Susie also answers some of your questions submitted on our Patreon page and the 88 Cups of Tea private Facebook group. There are questions like what middle grade editors are excited about and looking for, what type of questions an author should be asking literary agents and agencies during a query call, what ways marginalized authors can market themselves, and how New Leaf agents work to pass along query letters between each other to find the best fit for a project. Okay, now let's get right into it. When was the first time that you realized that you were in love with storytelling? Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) So way back when I was like a baby, like before I was one years old, my, my mom, she'd been a a teacher. And then when she had me, she was like, I, I want to be at home during the day. So she worked retail in the evenings. My dad would come home from work and he was supposed to watch me and put me to bed and she would go to work during that time. Which now that I'm an adult, I'm like, oh man, my parents, they made some sacrifices for me. And I also have heard that apparently I would cry when my mom would leave me with my dad, which I'm sure was just terrible for <laughs> both of them, but <laughs> what can I do now? So my mom had bought a bunch of like picture books and different things and my dad was supposed to read a picture book each night to put me to bed. But he didn't like any of them. I think a lot of them were like Disney princess stories and things, and he didn't like them. <laughs> so instead, he started reading The Lord of the Rings. Oh, my God, me. that's awesome. You're joking me. No, no. And he <gasps> basically would go into the room with me, and he would lay me down in the crib or whatever. And he would read a little bit of Lord of the Rings, and I would fall asleep. And then the next night, he would pick up wherever he left off. And it took him like a really long time, but he read all three books to me. And then he read The Hobbit. And then he read some of the like lost tales from Middle Earth and different things like that. So like this went on for years. And apparently when I was old enough to like talk and different things like that, a lot of times he would come in and he would read a little bit and put it down. And I would be like, no more, more. And so when we finished all of Tolkien's stories, And he was like, what should we read next? And I was old enough to have an opinion. I just wanted him to read Lord of the Rings again. And so he did it again. So I feel like that was my introduction into reading and into fantasy in particular. That's pretty freaking hardcore. (laughs) I know, I know. And my dad was a huge fan, obviously, of Tolkien. And so it was such a way that I feel like I was immersed into fantasy and into storytelling. And I feel like for a long time, I felt like Middle Earth was real, that it was like in some other dimension or something, like Middle Earth had to exist. That was definitely something that, you know, after that I just couldn't, I couldn't let go of stories. I think that they were always something that had become after that something that I really loved and really leaned into for entertainment and escapism and everything like that. Then the other thing is that when I was in school, My mom teaches at a a Quaker school, and so I went to that school growing up. All the books we read, 
the teachers used to tear out the last chapter of the class set of the books so that the kids couldn't look at the ending and spoil it for everyone else. I remember my mom, I remember like finishing a book early and being upset and like telling my mom I couldn't read the end and I really wanted to know what it was. And she was like, well, let's go to the bookstore and you can look at the book and you can sit and read to the end. And I was like, okay. That was one of the first times that I was like, oh my God, the bookstore is amazing. <laughs> my parents did a good job for me. I think that was so interesting how you fell in love with storytelling, how it was really weaved into your almost like your bloodline. Yeah. Right? It's so fascinating. How did you go from there? I read in your bio that you graduated from film school. So how'd you go from storytelling, loving all the books, and then wanting to go into film school? Yeah, so it's interesting. I really love all forms of storytelling. And so books are are such a big part of that. I am definitely a television addict. I love movies. I even love the more story-based video games and different things like that. There's definitely that love for like all forms of storytelling that played into it. I want to say that when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I first started out thinking I wanted to be an author. I wanted to tell stories. But all of the stories that I wanted to tell were like, there's a very quiet girl in math class and the boy that ignores her actually is really in love with her. And they were all based on, this is what I wish would happen in my life right now. But I was doing a lot of journaling and different things like that. I had had a teacher who basically had been like, oh, well, you should do something with stories for like a job. That's what you should focus in. You could major in English. You could do different things. I thought that was really cool. I didn't want to go to college anywhere where it would snow. My parents had been very much like, you should get good grades and go to college and get a degree. And that was kind of already something that they had decided that's what I'm working towards in school. One of the things that I was thinking about is, you know, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. One of the coolest places to me was always California. It was sunny and it didn't rain very much. It just always looked beautiful. So I kind of got it in my head, like, well, I want to go to college in California. Or I want to go somewhere where it's not going to snow, where it's going to be sunny, where like I could go to the beach. Just kind of like those things. And then when I was looking later, when I got into high school and we were really sort of doing all of the career tests, like learning about different colleges and stuff like that, I realized that film school was a thing. And I thought that that was just so cool, the idea that there were people out there that would work on movies and television and also then potentially bring stories to life. So, you know, there were so many wonderful books out there and so many stories that had already been written that like I would have wanted to see as a show or see as a movie. And so that was something that I was like, oh, I want to go to film school and do that. I want to bring stories to more people, which is interesting because I think that I actually do much more of that now. But at the time, I really thought movies and TV, like that's what I want to do. It was really interesting because then I did go to film school and a year into it, I was like, I don't actually want to do this at all. <laughs> uh, I want to do something else. Do you mind me jumping in and asking what specifically made you realize, holy crap, this is not what I want to do? <laughs> no, it's like in the summer, my mom at the Quaker school, one of her students 
His mom was the locations manager in Philadelphia. And so she worked on a ton of movies that were filmed in the Philadelphia area. There was the Denzel Washington movie called Fallen, and she worked on that. And she worked on Sixth Sense. I was about to go into college when Unbreakable was going to be filmed with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. And my mom happened to mention I wanted to go to film school and and she was like, oh, well, does she want to intern? She could come be my intern. And I was like, yes, that sounds great. It was the summer after my freshman year and I interned with her and we did a bunch of commercials and she was also very involved in Unbreakable. Locations, I think, is a tough job because you have to show up first and get everything ready and you have to stay the latest and like <laughs> let everything pack up. But I hated being on set. I was like... <laughs> terrible. There was just so much waiting around and standing around. And like, of course, as an intern, one of my jobs was to like help the production assistants basically tell people like, I'm sorry, you can't walk this way because we're filming. Like you have to walk over there. God, that's so uncomfortable. I know. Or like, no, you can't park your car here. I know you're right there, but our trucks are in the way. Things like that. And I was like, this is so terrible. I don't want to do this. Granted, you have to work your way up into any sort of career. And I'm sure it would have been different if I had stuck it out. But It was not like it wasn't any of the sort of like development of stories and the like, you know, I guess working with the story. It was a lot of, um, you know, just managing people and like listening to people's complaints and (laughs) things like that, where I was like, I don't I don't want to deal with this confrontation at all. I can totally see why you completely just rerouted. You're like, nope. So that was basically the part where you're just like, okay, hell no. I'm now going to do my education in writing. Is that how that came about? Yes. I remember it was my sophomore year in college and I went to see my advisor or something and was kind of like, I think I want to change majors. I don't think I want to do this film thing as a major anymore. The advisor had kind of been like, well, what do you want to do? And I wasn't sure. I've always been a planner. And I think that it was that kind of I had made all of these plans in my head that that's what I was going to do. And then suddenly I was like, no, that's not what I want to do at all. But I didn't have another plan. So I was kind of like, I'm not sure. She had said, well, rather than change your major and be undecided. Just stick with that for right now, figure out what you want to do, and then change your major. I always loved English. I was the kid that always read the books that were assigned, and I really loved my English classes, and so I had taken some writing classes. I ended up double majoring in film and English because by the time that I had figured out, like, okay, no, I'm going to major in English, I had taken so many of the film classes that my advisor was like, why don't you just take the last few and you'll just have the major in both. And it ended up being fine. Like, I have to admit, film classes are certainly not boring. Like, they they were a lot more fun than being on set. I didn't regret that at all. But it was interesting because then I graduated with an English degree and was still a little bit kind of like, what do I do with this? There are so many options, but none of them seem very clear. There's not necessarily like a super clear career path of what to do with an English degree. I was thinking like, oh, I could write a little bit. And I had joined an online writing community, which I don't think exists anymore. It was a little bit like Wattpad, but less sophisticated, I think. People would sort of post almost like chapter by chapter, like 
what they were working on and other people would comment and different things like that. And I think it was almost like in order to post things, you had to comment a certain number of times on other people's work. I really loved the commenting and the reading people's work and like offering them suggestions. I was very slow to post my own things. And every time I posted something and like people would comment, I did a lot of like, oh, I agree with their comment, but I don't know how I'd fix it. And then I would just kind of not go on with that project and like instead start something else. That was like one of the first times that I was like, oh, I I really like editing. Someone from that site, her book got published by a small press. It was a book that I had commented on throughout the entire book online. She had put my name in her acknowledgments and had sent me an email separately and was like, thank you so much for your notes. They were super helpful. And I was like, oh my God, I was part of this book, (laughs) which a little bit grandiose thinking, but still, it, you know, it was like the first time that I felt like, oh, I saw something in this from the beginning and my thoughts contributed to like her revision process. And so I came back to that later when I was thinking about getting into publishing. At first, when I graduated and was kind of like, what do I do with my English degree? I was working retail. I was at home one night and I was living in Florida outside Miami the Miami-Dade Education Board actually came onto the news and said that they were looking for teachers. And there had been a, a recent class size amendment that they had added to the Department of Education in Florida where they wanted to limit the size of English classes. It was a great idea, but in doing so, they suddenly had a huge shortage of English teachers. So they actually came on the news and were like, if you have a degree and you want to teach English, contact the Miami-Dade Board of Education. And I was like, I have a degree and I, I could teach English. I went down and I met with someone in the Department of Education and they were like, we have to take this test that proves that you know enough to teach kids. And then you'd qualify to be a substitute. Then you also had to take a test in the English field of kind of like to show that you knew enough about actual like teaching of English for high school kids. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll sign up to take these tests, did some substituting. And it was very funny because I learned, I relearned, I should say, how much patience my mom must have (laughs) because I substituted once in a kindergarten classroom. Oh, no. (laughs) My mom, when I was growing up, taught kindergarten and has taught preschool. I did the kindergarten classroom once and was like, never again. (laughs) I am, I'm just not that patient. Like all of the explaining things, I was getting poked a lot with people, (laughs) teacher, teacher. And I was like, I can't, I just can't do it. It's great birth control. Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. But so I substituted a little bit for sort of like the remainder of that school year and was getting all of my resume and like everything all ready to go. And I got a phone call from a high school that was like, we'd love to have you. We got your name from the Department of Education. We'd love you to come in for an interview. And I was like, great. So I went in for an interview and it was to teach ninth grade English and one section of honors journalism, which I thought, oh, that's perfect. I, you know, the film school was in the communications department. I took some communications and like journalism classes. Like I can, I can do that. It was, and it was almost like a day later they called and were like, we'd like to offer you the job. And I was like, great. 
I'll take it. And I, I, I have to imagine they, they didn't have that many people that they were able to interview. Like now that I'm older, because I'm like, I was fresh out of college. I had done zero student teaching. I knew nothing about being in the classroom other than having been a student myself. So I feel like they must have had almost no one to interview at least, but I'm pretty sure there was something way more special about you than you think. Okay. You're not giving yourself (laughs) enough credit. I I look back at those first classes I've taught and I'm like, oh man, I hope those kids made it. But they offered me the job and I was like, great, I will take it. It was only a few days before school started. I went there the next day. They were like, here's your classroom. My classroom was a little bit bigger than the other classrooms, and I had a row of computers, and they were like, it's for the journalism class, and I was like, oh, okay. And I had not really put together what that meant until it was like around lunchtime, and this girl came in, and she was a senior, and she introduced herself, and she was like, I'm in your honors journalism class, and I was like, oh, that's great. And she was like, did they tell you that the journalism class is responsible for the yearbook? And I was like, oh, like, and I didn't want to be like, no, they didn't. But I was kind of like, oh, and she was like, because they didn't tell our teacher last year and she only made it three months. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) So I was very, I was very nervous. I think I taught four sections of ninth grade English and then the one section of the honors journalism, which did the yearbook. We made it. (laughs) Congratulations. It was definitely a trial by fire feel very grateful to the the editors on my yearbook staff that year because they were very helpful when I'd be like, what does this mean? <laughs> this thing that's happening, what do I have to do? Because the yearbook was also in charge of things like class pictures. And I was the one that then had to coordinate with the photographers coming in to like do. Oh my God, like, you're joking pictures. me. One of the things I never realized that I would have to do was that I had basically had to like hunt down certain faculty members and be like, your photo in the yearbook is from 1975. We have to get a new picture for you. Like, please let us take a picture. Our school, the mascot was a lion. And so I think I even told faculty members that if they didn't have a photo, I was going to put in a photo of the lion instead. Oh my God, no, you did not. (laughs) I think I did. But yes, it was, it was a lot more than I'd been expecting. I want to now jump into how you went from there to publishing. How did that come about? Because I'm interested in this switch, how you jumped from one thing to another. So my sister is about four or five years younger than I am. And when she graduated college, She started working at a publishing company called Sage Press, and they do textbook publishing. It was a new job, and she was very excited about it, and so she would tell me a lot of things about it, and there were certainly times when I was like, oh, that sounds so fun. I like textbooks and curriculum and, like, the idea of pulling things together and, like, cultivating what kids would be reading in their textbooks seemed very appealing to me. But one of the things that I recognized pretty early on was that publishing is a very sort of New York centralized industry. And so I spent about six years teaching in San Diego and I really liked it. Some of my favorite stories come from my students in that era. I had a lot of fun with it. I also probably like any teacher, anyone who's been a teacher out there, I at times felt very disillusioned with the bureaucracy of a public school system. You know, there were times when I just kind of felt like, oh, is this really what I'm going to do 
as a career for the rest of my life. Like I, I like it, but like by the time the summer rolls around, I have to spend a couple weeks barely getting out of bed because I'm so exhausted from everything that I've done during the year. So I was feeling a little disillusioned with it. But at the same time, I was kind of like, I don't know what else I would do or like, is there anything else that I would like better? And when my sister was telling me about publishing, I remember thinking, oh, I think I would like that, but I can't really do that here. So, and so it was kind of something that I didn't really consider. And then at the same time, this was, gosh, I guess it was like in 2007 and it was like right around the time when the sort of housing bubble was bursting and lots of people were suddenly finding themselves, you know, their house was being foreclosed on or there were different things. And that was a particular issue, particularly in San Diego, where houses had gotten so expensive and people who had been approved for these very high interest loans for their house that they maybe shouldn't have been approved for that amount and they were finding it hard to pay off. And so that was all happening and the California state budget was kind of in crisis. So one of the things that at the time when I was teaching in California, I think in our ninth grade classes, you couldn't have more than 24 students in a ninth grade English class, which was wonderful because you could spend a lot of time teaching them how to write a literary analysis and all of the things. But as a result, the school system was like, we're going to do away with that. And you can now have like 30 some kids in your class. Now, suddenly the schools had too many English teachers and didn't need them all and needed to find a way to cut their budget. A lot of teachers were going to be, they were either going to be laid off or told, you know, oh, you're not going to be invited back next year or whatever. So that was happening. (laughs) And then the guy I was dating at the time was like, I don't think this is working. And I was like, okay, what do I do with my life? And so I actually was like, you know what? I think I just want to move back home and I want to move back to the East Coast. Maybe I could get a job working with textbooks if I moved back. So that's what I did. I pretty much like I had four, I had four dogs and I packed them all up and all of my things into a 14 foot Penske truck. And I towed my car behind me (gasps) and I drove from San Diego to Philadelphia. Wow. And was like, hello, parents. (laughs) You got rid of me, but in fact, I'm back. (laughs) So I was like, okay, so I'll just get a job at a textbook publisher. You know, my sister introduced me to a few people and I did some informational interviews. But one of the things that I ran into, which was interesting, is I had a master's, but I had no experience in publishing. So it was like that weird thing. People were all kind of like, well, you're a little old to be an assistant and you have all this other experience. How old were you at the time? I was 28. That's not, is that considered old for that industry? It's not that old, but a lot of assistants are like 22, fresh out of college. Oh, like right out of college. Okay, I gotcha. Okay. Um, And so I think there was a little bit of that, like, and I'm sure my, I probably didn't have a good resume. I was having a really hard time finding anything. And then we had the, ooh, the economy's not doing well and no one was hiring. And so I was like, oh man, what am I going to do? And so I started looking for just anything that I could do to figure out, did I want to do publishing? And I figured that I had enough savings that I was like, I could do something. I thought about a year 
And then with, you know, New York prices and all that, I realized, no, it's really only going to be about six months. But, um, you know, I was like, I think I have enough to like figure something out. And so I went to interview for an internship at a literary agency and I had looked up on their website and I had read like four books on their site and I went in coming from education. I was dressed in my pantsuit with like my binder and, and all of my notes. And the girl who interviewed me, she was wearing like jeans and a band t-shirt. She took me into her office and was like, okay, so like, do you like to read? What are some of the things you like to read? And we talked. And then she said, well, could you also read things that are like, not good? And I was like, yes, I was a teacher. I read plenty of things. That were <laughs> That's true. And, you know, could you give notes? And I said, yes. And we talked a little bit about it. And then she was like, well, when could you start? And I was like, tomorrow. <laughs> and so she hired me to be an intern. And within a week, I was like, oh, my gosh, screw textbooks. Like, this is what <laughs> I want to do. This is great. Like, I didn't know this was a thing. And it was really funny because my first day as an intern one of the agents at the time had said to me, like, well, what do you like to read? I said the most annoying thing that an intern can say, but I was like, I'll read anything. And she was like, no, no, what are the last five books you've read? And I was so embarrassed to tell her because coming from academia, if I was like, oh, I read this vampire romance, <laughs> like the other teachers would have been like, what's wrong with you? Why are you reading that? But of course, that's what I had read. So I told her and she was like, oh, that's amazing. I love those books. You can read for me. Aww. And I was like, oh my gosh, I found my people. I love that story so much. I hear you thought that she was maybe going to make a judgment. In the yes. end, it's, it was the best answer ever. Oh my I know. God. I know. It was, it was a very, it was like very quickly I realized, oh, okay, this is, this, this is where I belong. <sighs> Oh, that's so cute. I'm so happy to hear that. I know this happened like before, before, but I just hearing it for the first time now, I'm like, oh, I love that. It's so amazing. I and I want to say congratulations, even though it's very belated, but <laughs> well, that's <thanks>. awesome. <laughs> so then you were able to get the job working for her, reading her stuff. And you were there for how long? Um, so I, I was an intern for about three months. And then one of the assistants there was let go and the head of the agency basically offered me the job and was like, oh, Carol, wow. you would have to do. And I was like, yes, I will do it. Then I worked as an assistant there for about two years. And it was interesting because when I first started at the agency and in publishing, I kind of thought, well, I'm not a salesperson. I never would have been good at things like telemarketing phone calls or like door-to-door -door salesman was kind of what I was thinking of like sales. And so I was like, I wouldn't be good at that. Like, I'm not a salesman. So like, I shouldn't be an agent. And so I had thought, well, I, I really like books. And I like giving editorial notes, like I should be an editor. And so while I was an intern, I was working under the assumption that like, I was going to do my internship, I was going to apply for editorial positions. And hopefully, the agents were going to be pleased with me and help me connect to people. When I got hired as an assistant, my boss said to me, like, well, do you want to become an agent? And I was kind of like, I never even really thought that would be an option for me. I feel like I had like a very strange Hollywood notion of the idea that you were an editor. And then after being an editor and building your list and like 
having lots of connections, then like later you might become an agent and like start your own agency, which certainly did happen for a lot of people who became agents back in the day. But definitely like it didn't need to be that way. And so when he asked me that and like when after I'd worked for him, it was like we'd been working together maybe like a month or two and I'd been doing things for him and he had said like, oh, you you'd make a really good agent. Is that something you want? Is that what you want? And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, yes, I would really like to be an agent. And he had said to me, you know, like, oh, well, in a year, if you find a project that like you really like, like we could talk about you taking on some clients. And then it was a few months after that conversation that I found a manuscript that I really loved and it was YA and no one at the agency was really doing much commercial YA. And so I made the case, I want to do this. I want to take this on. And I had been very prepared to make a compelling argument and it was like, I got a little bit into it and my boss was kind of like, well, yeah, I think you could do that. (laughs) All right. Well, great. You know, and a lot of agenting, I mean, there's the sort of like the basic aspects of agenting, like you sign a client, you sell their work, you negotiate things, you follow up on stuff. But a lot of the things, you know, sort of outside those basics are things that you kind of learn while doing the job. Things come up and you're like, wait a minute, what do you mean you want this author to do this thing? Like, why? How is this helpful? You know, a lot of that is just things that you sort of learn either that you're going through yourself or that you see and hear colleagues going through. And you can kind of think like, no, wait a minute. What is the purpose of this? Is it helpful? And does the other want to do it? It was a little bit of jumping into agenting and figuring it out as kind of I went along. Okay. So you kind of like dumped in the ocean. You're learning how to float. A little bit, a little bit. I think it was after my very first book sale, which is very exciting. I think I just sold North American Rights. And so we retained translation. And I was really excited about it. And it was a paranormal YA. And our foreign rights person sent the manuscript and some information to our co-agents. I hadn't been there that long and I hadn't seen a ton of big foreign sales. And I certainly didn't have any because this was my first book sale. It was a Friday and my boss wasn't in the office. In fact, it was like Friday morning and it was like 9.30. The only people in the office were like me and the current round of interns. Our German co-agent called and asked to speak to me. And I was like, oh, I'm here. And he was like, we have a preempt offer. It's time sensitive. We have to know by the end of the day, which of course he meant the end of the German day, which was like 1 p.m. Oh God. Um, (laughs) We have to know if, the client wants to take it or not. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Like, it was definitely that moment where I was like, I don't know, like he's telling me the terms and the different things, but like, I don't know if it's good because I don't have any frame of reference. It was really funny because I first called my boss and I don't remember where he was. He was like in a meeting or something. And so he didn't answer. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, what do I do? And so I ended up talking to Janet Reed and being like, this happened and I don't know what to do. And she was like, okay, hang on. Let's talk it through. And so we talked everything through and she was like, well, here are some of the questions that you'd want to ask. You know, really the person who knows the most about the German market is going to be the German co-agent. So like call him back and ask him these questions and then go to the author and talk to the author. If they have any additional questions, go back to the German co-agent and ask them. Just do a lot of conversing. In the end, you know, in, an agent, they're there to advise. But in the end, everything is always the author's decision anyway. So mm. 
in the end, like we talked a lot about it. And ultimately I went back to the author and was like, okay, here's all the information. And I answered a lot of her questions. The German co-agent had told us, he was like, this is a very good preempt. I don't think we'd get more money elsewhere. I think I would recommend that you take it. And so I shared that with the author and she was like, yeah, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. And we did. It was like, I had been like, yeah, I sold my first book. And then it was literally like a week later. I was like, oh my God, I have this German offer and I don't know what to do. So it was interesting. That's insane. Okay. So you said that you were most worried originally about becoming an agent when it came to the sales stuff. So how mm-hmm. is that? How were you with that when, when you had to approach that whole sales type of stuff in the beginning, when you had to like pitch and all that? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I realized probably later on that it's really easy to sell something if you love it, especially in the book world. When you're talking about a book that you love, usually most book people are like, oh, that sounds really great. I want to read that too. Because that's just the kind of people we are. After I started pitching things, I realized, oh, this is definitely a different kind of salesperson. And it's not as hard as I thought. So it's not like a rehearsed speech, like how I imagine TV writers and producers entering a room and pitching to networks. It's not like that. It's more of like, let me tell you about this book I found. I, you, you have no idea. You have to hear more about this author and, and what she had in mind. And this is a story and this is the inspiration. So it's just sharing. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and I'm sure that editors actually have to do probably like a little more of the like sort of convincing their sales team to buy things at times. But as an agent, you know, a lot of times since you're dealing directly with the editor, what they want most is something, a story that they're going to fall in love with and want to work on. You know, the things like marketing or who the audience is and things like that. Those are all a little bit secondary to like, I love this book. One of the things like when I first, when I was an assistant and I started meeting editors and going to, you know, either drinks events or lunches or different things like that, you know, one of the things I realized is that I could just always ask people like, oh, what's, what is something that you've read recently that you've really loved? And we could just talk books and then I could kind of just kind of segue into like, oh yeah, I signed this project and I really love it and here's why. Um. And most of the time, the editor would be like, that sounds great. I really want to see that when it's ready. Or occasionally you'd have an editor that is like, oh, that sounds really cool. You know who would love that is my colleague. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It feels a lot more natural and not so like in your face. Yes. It's a lot more natural. You know, it is interesting. I think like there were a couple times where I had someone we just didn't have the same taste. And like, you'd realize that after having a phone call or after meeting them, having coffee or something like that, you'd realize like, oh, they're a very nice person. And like, I liked getting to know them, but we don't have the same taste in books. I probably won't sell them anything. And so, I mean, I think that was a sort of like a really interesting part in the beginning of my career. Now, a lot of times, like, you know, there are editors that I continue to work with or that I know that we have similar tastes or there are, I feel like, recently I've gotten to the point where like there are sometimes like newer editors who will reach out to me and be like, I love this book that with this author that you represent, like I'd love to meet you. So it's still, I think the face-to-face aspect and the agent to editor relationship is a lot more pure based in like, I love this book versus like a Hollywood sort of thing where you have to deal with the network executives who you know, their bottom line is a little bit different. Okay. That's really, really interesting. I'm like imagining this as a movie, by the way, I'm like, wow, (laughs) I could just imagine seeing you doing your thing. I'm like, oh, this is kind of like 
a more badass version of Entourage when you think about it. Yes. It's so cool. Okay, so I am going to squeeze in. I'm like trying to, I'm like teeter tottering between like, oh God, should I ask you this one question I have or just move on to listeners? So you know what? Let's just do listeners because I want to make sure I give some time to them. So okay. we have a lot of questions, but just for time's sake, I'm going to narrow it down to four. We're going to give priority to the ones who are super storytellers. We just launched this really fun membership through Patreon. So I'm really excited about that. I just launched it this week. And so the first three uh, questions are going to be from our super storyteller members. And then the fourth one is going to be from one of our members in our private Facebook group. So first one is Elizabeth Newton, and she would love to know, what does Susie find middle grade editors getting particularly excited about these days? Oh, man. So, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like middle grade doesn't necessarily follow trends as closely as, you know, some something like YA, um, which is often very trend-based. I feel like middle grade editors are often, you know, the, one of the biggest things that they come back to is, is voice and is like a strong middle grade voice where the story is it might be plot driven or it might be character driven, but the voice just feels very kid friendly. I think the other thing that middle grade editors are always looking for um, is is a good sense of humor. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, something that has to be like wimpy kid or dork diaries humor. That's like where humor is the main focus, but even having a, like an, an action adventure story, um, that has a healthy dose of humor, um, is really good at, you know, humor is always something that helps bring in reluctant readers, um, and encourage kids to read, you know, at that age where they're, you know, reading at first on their own. Um, so I know people are always looking for that. Okay. That's super helpful. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Second, we have Caitlin Duncan. She said, I'm so excited for this interview. Susie has been on my agent wish list for years, and I can't wait to listen. As I'm going through the query process in the very near future, I wonder what types of questions you like to hear from an author during the call. Ah, yes. So it's interesting. I feel like, I mean, my, my goal is always to give my spiel and answer all the questions <laughs> before they come up. But, um, but I do think like some important author questions are, um, you know, communication style is always important to know. Like is, if you're an email person, is your agent also going to be an email person or do they prefer phone calls? And like, is that something that's going to work for you. I think that's an important thing for you to think about and know. And I recommend that this is kind of after the call, but I recommend that authors always get almost like an agent's references or like ask to speak to a few of the agent's clients. And I would say that a client who has been with that agent for, you know, a while is good. Someone who maybe has their first book has just come out. Or, you know, if there's a client who, this isn't always public, so maybe this would be one that's hard, but like having an author who's been on submission and the book didn't sell, I think is always a good person to talk to um, just because they've been through the process and they know sort of what 
what the agent does like is it did you go on multiple submission rounds did you did you just go on the one and it didn't sell and now you're on to something else like what is that I think that's always like a good person to speak to um, and in terms of that I think you could ask the agent the sort of the question of like what if we worked together and we went on submission with this book and it didn't sell um, because I think that you know one of the things that you want in an agent is someone who um, and an agency is like some, uh, like people who are invested in like the career trajectory of an author versus just this one project. Um, and then I think another thing that's important to ask is about the agency itself um, in the sense of, you know, what departments are in-house at the agency. Um, is there a, like a subrights department? Is there someone who's actively trying to sell translation rights? Um, is there like who is trying to sell the audio rights? Um, it, do they work with someone either in-house or someone at a major agency who represents film rights? Like how do all those things work? Because I think that one of the very common things as an author is like, you know, you're very focused on the domestic book because that is the, the sort of that's the product that means the most to us right like we're readers we buy books in the language that we read at the stores down the street not you know um, but at the same time you know as an author building a career you know you want revenue that comes from your domestic book sale but you also want revenue that's coming from, you know, translation sales and audiobook sales and, you know, film, merchandise, theme parks, you know, whatever you can get, you want that um, because that's how you build a career. And a lot of times those departments actually work together. Like um, at New Leaf, our film department and our foreign rights department, they work together a lot to coordinate different things and to build buzz and to help each other with sales. Um, and so I think that that is something that can be really helpful for an author, particularly if, you know, their dream at some point is to be a full-time author. You know, it's really hard to do that on just a domestic book sale. So I think that that's definitely something to ask about. Those are super helpful. Thank you so much. I'm sure Caitlin's going to really appreciate that. Now, our third question is from Melissa C. She says, hi, everyone is so excited and lots of smiley face emojis. Her question is, when you go about signing a marginalized client, how do you go about marketing them in a way that prospective editors will respect their identity? Oh, I think that really depends on the author. You know, I think it's, I think it's a little bit tough because, you know, obviously if someone is comfortable and like wants to put themselves out there in a way that is presenting like I'm from this marginalized background and this is how it influenced my story and this is how it influenced my writing and my, my journey, that's one thing. And I think then there are other authors that like they really don't want to do that and like be sort of like feel like they are the voice for their community or feel put on the spot like that. So I think that there's a lot of an individual process there. And I would say the first step is like sort of talking to the author. Usually when we have the conversation, like for the call, we talk a little bit about like how the idea came to you and like what, uh, what you want people to think of, you know, in 10 years for your career, like if someone is like, you know, what does a Susie Townsend book look like? You know, what, what are readers going to say about that? Um, and so, I mean, I think that 
it is important in, in some respects of, you know, I have an author who, you know, is writing and she was like, I don't want to be known as a writer of like this one sort of cultural fantasy. I want to be known as a fantasy writer, even though I'm from this background. Um, and I think that's important. I think that that's an important thing to consider in terms of like how you are marketing something. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of like, you know, of going to editors that you know also are going to have the sort of the same philosophy about things. Because if you go to an editor who's really going to want to get their marketing team on board behind a certain aspect of an author's life and they don't really want to talk about that, then that's obviously going to be a problem. So I think it's a lot of basically talking to the author and talking about how how they want to be pitched in the marketplace and like what messaging they want for their book and then pitching them to like-minded editors and pitching them in that way, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Totally get that. And the next one is from Jade May Hemming. She said, Oh, wow. Another super agent. My question is how closely does New Leaf work in passing a query or pages between each other to find the right fit for a project? Um, so we try to work very closely with that. And I say try because oftentimes when I get queries and I think, oh, this project is really good. It's not right for me. I will forward it around and say to the team, like, oh, is anyone interested in this? This looks good, but it's not quite right for me. Or sometimes I'll send it to a specific person and be like, I think you'll like this. But at the same time, I will say that, you know, I get about 200 queries a week on average. And I usually set aside a few hours to like sit down and go through them once a week. Sometimes I run late, but I really try to do a chunk in one sitting to get through a bunch of them. And as a result, there are certainly times when I might come across something and not think to do that. And maybe I should have. So usually what I tell authors is that we try to loop people in if we see something that we think like, oh, this would be good for that other agent. But if I don't request something and you think that it might be a good fit for someone else, query them anyway, because there's a chance, sure, that I passed it to them already and they were like, no, but there's certainly probably a larger percentage chance that I didn't because I just can't do that with every query. Okay. That is super helpful. I personally want to know, as a team leader, I was reading your bio, it says that you serve as the agency's team leader. I'm so curious because this is also where Joanna was speaking, again, very highly of you in her episode. And I am just so curious what that means, team leader, and how did you jump into the team? Like, where was all this? Like, how did that happen from one agency to another and becoming a leader? Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. So when New Leaf started, you know, Joanna and I had worked together at Nancy Coffee Literary, and it was the two of us and Kathleen Ortiz. And then when Joanna was like, I'm starting New Leaf, and we were like, great, we're coming with you. <laughs> Which, I mean, our, our old boss retired. It was do go somewhere else or just stay where you are with Joanna, who was already sort of, you know, the person who was running all the things. So it was a very easy decision. And then Priya Shabazian, who did our film rights at the time, he actually came on board in-house. So in the beginning, it was just the four of us and an assistant. And if you had questions about everything, usually the four of us would just be like, all right, wait, let's, I have a situation. Let's all talk it out and figure out like what we should do. 
within a few years, we went from being four people, I think, to being like 13 or 14. Dang. And, you know, it was our translation department grew. Puya took on an assistant. We took on a few literary assistants. So, like, another agent came on here and there. And so, like, it was, we grew very quickly. And suddenly, we weren't able to be like, okay. I had this one situation come up where I got this weird email from an editor, like, what do we think it means? Like, you couldn't do that with all 13 people. And as the agency continued to have great success stories, that also meant that people were busier and busier. And so it was harder necessarily to sit down and have the same collaboration that we'd always became very naturally when we were just four of us. And so we also realized that Joanna, while, you know, she's got her own client list and she's also running a business, it was really hard for her if like everybody was constantly coming to her being like, I have this thing, what do you think? And so we had talked a lot about it and kind of decided that I was basically following Joanna, the most experienced person on the team. And if I was in the office when she was traveling or vice versa, that it would be easy for the team and particularly like up and coming agents that like, if they needed a point person to go to, then I could be that point person. So it's partly, I mean, there's not really necessarily a set guidelines of what that role means. It's a lot of informal check-ins with other agents. I feel like I to end up running a lot of the meetings that we have in the agency where like, you know, we meet periodically, like as a literary department, like all the agents and literary assistants, we meet together and talk about certain things. And then we also have like an all staff meeting once a week. Again, when we were a small, very small company, you know, it was easy to everybody to just show up to the meeting. You didn't need necessarily an agenda. And I feel like now that we're, I think we're 15 or 16 people now. And it's like, you need an agenda because otherwise the time goes by very quickly and you don't want to all be stuck in a meeting for a couple hours. And having someone to help coordinate sort of on behalf of the agents with the film and foreign departments and different things like that, it's just helpful to make sure that the transparency is there and that things are running smoothly. So I feel like there's a little bit of the like keeping everything going well administratively in the office and with the team. And then, you know, I'll get like a G chat or like someone will call and be like, Hey, do you have a minute to talk something out? And that's kind of, you know, I play a lot of the sounding board role. This is going to be a question that's a little bit more of a reflective question to overlook your entire career. What do you think is your proudest moment looking back on everything that you've done? Anything that you take from that question, please share. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I definitely feel like probably the first book that I sold, I definitely remember taking the train home that evening when we'd closed the deal and just feeling like, I'm so happy that that guy broke up with me and that that I made this decision and that that I followed through because it just was kind of like that moment of feeling like this, this is what I love to do. And this is, I didn't, I hadn't realized it was out here, but like, this is what I want to do with my life. So I definitely would say that kind of the, the transition and the getting into publishing is definitely up there. I also feel like those moments, and I mean, I have them now more often, of course, than I did in the beginning, but they still feel like so wonderful is getting the, the finished copy of the book. Cause usually it comes to my desk a day or two before the book will go on sale. The editor will usually send it with like a note and that feeling of like, Oh, I was part of this. I helped 
the author sort of turn this dream into a real thing. I have the biggest smile on my face. You are such a kind person. You're just so genuinely sweet. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show, by the way. And two more things. I would love for you to let the listeners know where to find you on social media to say hi and what's up and thank you for your time. And also, if there's a book that you can recommend for our listeners who are mostly writers, if that's a craft book or like a book that blew your mind and you're like, holy crap, I wish there were more stories like this, or this is what it means to be like a great writer, like any anything like that, if you could just spill that out. Okay. Um, so to find me on social media, I am on Twitter as an example of potentially what not to do when you create your username. <laughs> um, my username is SZTownsend81. So you all know the year that I was born. So that's where I'm on Twitter. And I believe I have the same Instagram handle. So that's, you know, I, once I had it, I had to stick with it. And then I'm also on Tumblr suzytownsend.tumblr.com. So that's where you can find me for sure. And then in terms of books that I've read, one of the books that I often recommend to people, it's actually a screenwriting book. It's called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. Writing screenplays can be very formulaic. And I think our Puya, our film guy always says, definitely read the first few chapters. Like if you don't read the whole book, it's fine. But I think what I like a lot about that book is the three-act structure that they offer. I think it's very helpful to writers who are potentially struggling with plotting or figuring out how to make the plot sort of all fit together so that it feels like it's all one thread versus like episodes. And so I I definitely recommend that. I think it's, it's very interesting and like you don't have to stick to a formula in books, but it can really be helpful to sort of have something as a basis. And then one of the books that I read a couple years ago and just loved so much is called Chime by Franny Billingsley. And I love the fact that the world building is so incredible and the main character, the voice is so very strong. And I want to say that in the first page, the character opens up by saying, I'm guilty and I want to be hanged now. And like the whole book just kind of goes from there and you, you ultimately learn like what she thinks she's guilty of and all the things that have happened. Um, And it feels a bit historical and it feels a bit fantasy, but there's no necessarily like clear set. Like this is the date that this takes place. And I really like that because I think it's really, I think it's really hard to do that. And yet, the way she's crafted the world building and the characters and the setting and everything like that is just so wonderful. We have Susie back on the podcast with us today again because I dropped the ball and did not ask Susie about query letters. And uh, Susie was kind enough to spend so much time again with us to basically circle back on the query letters that she loves. And also she gave us bonus content for her show notes page, which was extra nice, the extra cherry on top. Thank you so much, Susie. So why don't we kick it off and let's just talk about which were some of your favorite, favorite, favorite queries that stood out to you and why? No, of course. So One query that I love and come back to all the time is the query that ultimately became sort of like the pitch for the book Frostblood by Ellie Blake. When Ellie queried me, she started out with, you know, she has such a great sort of synopsis of the book 
the query letter starts out right away. It just says, Dear Ms. Townsend, in the Frost King's prison, 17-year-old Ruby vows to kill the king who caused her mother's death. And right away in that first sentence, I know exactly what the main plot line is. And sometimes if you're writing a query and you have a very sort of plot-driven book, it's perfect to start out with that one sentence that conveys what the main character wants, what their number one goal is. This first sentence does that, and it also gives you the reason why, which is implied there. Obviously, she wants to kill the king because he killed her mother or because he caused her mother's death. And I also, one of the great things about Ellie's query is it's actually pretty short. I usually recommend to people that their query be around 250 words. If you look at the queries that I sent, if you have time, it was interesting to me as I went through them because there are some queries that are shorter than that 250 words, and then there are a couple that are longer than that. So it's just kind of a guideline in terms of when you're writing something. If you're getting a little bit long, you kind of want to think about it, or if you're short, you just want to make sure you have all the things in there, but it is okay if you don't hit that sort of perfect word count range. But Ellie's query is a little bit short. It doesn't really focus on the reason she queried me. Obviously, I hope she queried me because she thought I was a good agent, but um, <laughs> she focuses just kind of on like, this is what the plot is. And within that, her word choice was really great. And I mean, if you think about it, it's really hard to write a query, obviously, because you you're trying to summarize what your book is about in just a couple paragraphs. And so when a writer is able to do that and make it so that it feels like every word counts, something that really kind of has an impact to an agent as you're reading it. Like it doesn't feel like there are extra words thrown in there. And so, for example, within the, her first paragraph, Ellie says that one night, two frostbloods, a crippled monk and a scarred young man break into the prison and offer Ruby a deal, her freedom in exchange for an alliance against the despotic king. I just feel like that right there, again, it's kind of like, and this is where the plot's going. And so it leads us along. The other thing to think about, particularly if you have a very plot-driven story, is that you want each paragraph to sort of build off of the one that came before it. So you want it to feel like the stakes are getting higher and higher as you go. And then... The other thing, and this is something that people really struggle with, particularly when it's fantasy, which is why I was kind of thinking of Frostblood, is that sometimes with fantasy, you have so much world building and there's so much backstory and there's political alliances and there's all these different characters. And so sometimes it can be really hard to narrow that all down into a query. And Ellie did that really well. She only introduces two characters, the heroine, Ruby, and Arcus who is the scarred young man. And of course, he's also the implied love interest in the query. And everybody else, like anyone else that she needs to mention, for instance, like the king or the monk, they're not named because they're not that important for us to know. And if she named them, it would have felt a little bit like character soup. That's kind of what happens when there's too many names in such a short paragraph is that it feels like that you don't know what to focus on. So she did that really well. And the only real world building in the query is this idea that there is a frost king. There is these frost bloods who presumably have some kind of frost magic and that Ruby wants to kill the king. And that's kind of like 
all there is to the world building. You know, and there's a lot more, obviously, in the book about how the Frostbloods and Firebloods started to, like, have their war and why the Frost King ended up killing her mother and different things like that. But it just doesn't need to be in the query. So that's what I really like about this one. Of course, it is interesting. When I was pulling all these queries together, I was looking at them, and a lot of the titles changed from the time that the book was queried and the time that it came out. So for instance, Ellie's book was called The Frost King when she submitted it. And when we sold the book to Little Brown Books for Young Readers and they changed, they were like, there's too many books with King in the title. Like we want to change the title. So they changed it to Frostblood, which I think was Ellie's But so it's very interesting. I was looking at it. I was like, wow. Do you mind me jumping in and asking like when, when these titles change, let's say if Ellie was like so opposed to Frostblood, right? And, and really liked Frost King. What happens there? So it depends a little bit on the contract. So Frostblood was a book that sold at auction, which is great. You know, sometimes when you are selling a book either at auction or it's a preempt and someone really wants the book, um, you have a little bit more leverage. Or obviously if you're a, a big established author, you have a little bit more leverage with your contract. I would say that most contracts, most agents are probably asking for approval over the title. And if they don't get it, then asking for consultation on the title, which means the publisher can't, they have to ask, they have to let the author weigh in. Most publishers, on the other hand, are trying to just have them, their sales team basically, be in charge of retitling books because the sales team will say like, oh, we don't want, you know, we know best, we want the the book to be titled this. And so if Ellie had been like, I hate this title, no matter what, no matter where we were with the contract, like I would have gone back to them and been like, we hate this. This is her book. It's got her name on it. We really hate this title. Like, can we come up with something else? And most of the time, the editor really doesn't want the author to like hate their title or their cover or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, you still have to kind of work with the sales team. Okay. If that all makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Okay, that's super helpful to know and just to be aware of. All right, so do you mind me jumping into one of the queries that you sent over that I'm looking over right now? You were talking about how usually it's better to keep it short. And yes, there are exceptions where there are long ones. And can I jump into that real quick? The exception was the one sent by Chelsea Sadati. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name yeah. correctly. Yeah. So hers was a bit longer. It looked like twice the size of Ellie Blake's. And could you share a little bit with the listeners what it was about this? And again, I know you detailed it wonderfully in your bonus content in your show notes page, but could you share with the listeners right now as to why it stood out to you, why it worked with doubling the normal size that you you usually tend to like or lean towards? What was it about Chelsea's query specifically? Yeah, no. So Chelsea, it's actually interesting. Her opening couple lines, she mentions that she read that I was interested in character-driven YA with strong voices, which you never have to say that. Some agents might like it. Some don't care. But you never have to say that. Obviously, most of the reason that someone is querying is because they want an agent to get their book published. You don't really need much more reason than that. But she starts out with that. And one of the reasons I like it in her case is that she mentions how her main character, she hopes that that her voice is one that resonates with me. And then in the query, 
that character's voice really comes across. You know, it's not in first person or anything like that. It's still a query letter, you know, featuring what the book is about, but it's very voice driven. And so the beginning of the query opens up, Hawthorne Creeley has spent her life waiting for something to happen, something meaningful, something extraordinary, something real. Um, and it just, that, and I mean, I connected to that as, you know, when I, when I was 17, I was waiting for something to happen and feeling kind of, and so I can almost like, it's like, I can hear the character telling me that almost. And as you go through the query, you know, it continues like that, where there are, the word choice is very specific. It definitely creates the voice of the character. And the other thing about this one and where I think it works really well for the voice is that obviously there is a plot, but it's definitely, it's a contemporary book. It's like a much slower kind of coming of age story that's really focused on Hawthorne and the character and her journey. And so it's not necessarily very action-based. And so when you have a really strong voice like that and maybe not a big, like she has to kill the king type of plot, Showing that off that voice within the query can be a huge benefit. It's longer because there is some repetition and there are things that sort of imply plot elements versus actually like coming out and saying it. I think if you summed up this book, it would be pretty easy to do in just a couple paragraphs. That's about a girl who hears a, that a classmate has gone missing, makes up a theory about it, and then tries to find proof that her theory is correct. But the query, you know, because it's from Hawthorne's point of view, it leads you to those conclusions very slowly, you know, where she says, on its own, Lizzie Lovett's disappearance is a totally boring event. Sure, people are saying Lizzie probably got eaten by a wild animal or murdered by her boyfriend or something. They don't mean it. Everyone knows bad things happen, don't happen to girls like Lizzie Lovett. And so like that, gives you a very great sense of who Hawthorne is as a character. Um, so it's like that kind of thing where it's, it doesn't necessarily like, it didn't necessarily need to be there, but it's such a good example of showing something that you say. Cause I get a lot of people who will open up a query and say to me, I saw that you like this. I saw you said this online. And they're then saying like, my book is a good fit for you because my book is that. But then sometimes in the query, like, there's no real evidence of that. Like, it doesn't feel like it fits what you're saying it does. And that's often then something that feels problematic. Or I'm like, well, I don't see it. So you could just be saying that. This was a moment where she's saying, like, that the voice, this is a voice-driven story, and I can totally see it. Perfect. Okay, and I noticed this one, Chelsea's uh, title was also changed, yeah, from the Moonlighters? Yes. No, I mean, it's so, it was so interesting as I was going through them because so many of the titles yeah. changed. So Chelsea pitched this and it was called The Moonlighters. And there was a very good reason for that. But the publisher, after they bought it, they were like, hey, we feel like it's a title that resonates with readers after they've read the book, mm. but not necessarily a title that will resonate with readers before they've read the book and potentially cause them to pick it up. And they were a little worried that it would sound paranormal. And so Chelsea had chapter headers that were titled, and one of the chapter titles was The Hundred Lives of Lizzie Lovett, implying that she had many different, you know, sort of 
she was lying a lot in turn mm-hmm. to create different sort of images of herself to different people in different circumstances. And um, basically, we're like, what if we took something like that and tweaked it a little bit? And Chelsea really liked the idea. Okay, that's really interesting. Then do you think it's crucial? Or do you think it's not that important for authors to basically take their titles too seriously? Because it seems like it's quite common that it does change. But I did like the note that you mentioned where the publishers were like, you know, um, Moonlighters, people will understand it after reading your book, but not so much before to draw them in. So is that something that is that a tip that you share with listeners where it's like, okay, if you're thinking of a title, think of something that would attract potential readers before they know anything about your book? Or do you advise like, hey, just title it however you feel best fits, and then we'll go from there? It's a little bit of both. I don't want any author to spend a bunch of time or have a lot of stress over their title. Because no matter what they come up with, or no matter how great that the author and I think it is, there is always a chance that the publisher might be like, hey, we don't want to title it this. And here's why. So I I do certainly recommend like, you probably don't want to get too attached to your title just in case. I mean, there's sometimes things come up where it's like, oh, this title is also the title of a book that just came out by Stephen King. So we don't want to title it that because then no one will find our book. They'll just find the Stephen King book or something like that. Mm -hmm. So all sorts of things can come up. You don't want anyone to like really stress about it and then get super attached to a title. I think when you're thinking of a title, it is always important to think of the title as, yes, you want something that will make sense for the book, of course, but you also want something that is going to draw people in who don't know what the book is about. Because the cover and the title are actually still kind of like the best marketing tool that every book has. Mm. Because it's the title and it's the cover that are going to make people pick up a book and be like, what is this about? And read the description. Very true. Okay, how about the title catching your attention for the query? Does it matter that much to you if they think of this most brilliant, beautiful title? Does that actually make a difference in how much longer you'll continue reading the query letter? Or does it not make a difference? It's really about uh, how the writer writes, the voice, the character, and the story. Yeah, in the end, the title doesn't really matter to me. Okay, okay, um, that's good to know. I've certainly seen things where I'm like, oh, I love that title. But then if the query doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. There is, you know, some of that where like, if the title is really great, every time I open up my iPad and I'm seeing the title, I, it's gonna, I make me be like, oh, I, I have to read that soon. Gotcha. But at the same time, I'm predominantly reading things, you know, in the order that they come in. So it's not like I'm going to skip ahead and read it. And if the book isn't good, the book isn't good. Or if the book is good, the title doesn't matter. So yeah, so don't, certainly don't stress about it too much. Okay, that's super helpful. All right, Uh, Susie, you've been so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing those examples. And for listeners, like we mentioned, uh, Susie was very kind and shared six awesome query letters, exemplary ones that really stood out to her. And she also followed up each one with her own opinions as to why exactly each one stood out to her. So that's a bonus content in her show notes page. So be sure to head over to her show notes page. It'll be at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Susie-Townsend. And then scroll all the way to the bottom and to download your bonus content to look through it, uh, just click on the download button. Um, Susie, is there one last note that you want to share with listeners about query letters overall? Gosh, I guess that the questions that I get most about queries are about people's bios and about comparable titles. And I would say that don't worry if you don't have 
an amazing bio or anything like that. As you'll see from these queries, some people included a few lines about themselves and some people didn't, and it's totally fine. For comparable titles, if there are some good titles out there that you can say like, my audience is gonna be the same as these books, that's also really helpful. For Frostblood, if you're saying that, you know, my fantasy will appeal to people who are also read Graceling by Kristen Kishore or Throne of Glass by Sarah J. Moss, that's helpful because that's a very clear audience of who's buying that book. It doesn't need to be a this meets that comparison, which is what a lot of people sort of kind of get hung up on. You don't have to say like it's The Bachelor meets Hunger Games or something like that. Thank you so much, seriously, for hopping <laughs> back you. on this Great. call and giving me extra 30 minutes. You are the freaking best. Seriously, I've, I cannot say thank you enough before your ear bleeds, so I'm going to stop. But truly, thank you. I'm so appreciative of you. The listeners are going to freaking love your episode. You have no idea. Ah, I'm so excited. Okay, <laughs> Susie, you are awesome. Thank you so much. I'm going to let you go no, so you can do you. your thing Great. with work, okay? So okay. <laughs> have an awesome rest of your day and the rest of your week, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, sounds good. Talk to you soon. And that wraps up our conversation with Susie Townsend. Susie, thank you so much for sharing all of your incredible stories, advice, and inside look into the world of a literary agent. I had so much fun talking with you. And now I am so excited to air the interview of our Patreon contest winner, Caitlin Duncan. Hey everyone, we have Caitlin Duncan with us today, a fellow storyteller in our community who won the contest. I am so excited to introduce you to your fellow storyteller. Caitlin, how are you today? Good. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on. I just want to dive right in so the rest of our listeners and our community can learn more about their fellow listener. First of all, what are you doing? Do you have a day job? Do you write full-time? How's your day-to-day set up like? I actually don't work full-time anymore. When I had my child in 2015, I decided to stay home with her. In that time, I was writing before that. I've been published since 2013. I took it as an opportunity to work on my writing a little more and kind of branch out a little bit. And at that point, um, I started with Upwork. So I do freelancing as well. And I've been publishing and writing ever since. Oh, that's amazing. And Upwork, do you do uh, freelance writing and like copy editing and that kind of work? Or is it totally different? Because I'm very aware with Upwork and I love Upwork. Well, basically, I do ghostwriting, so I do fiction for other people. Oh my gosh, well. that's amazing. <laughs> uh, that is incredible. Um, I love that you touched on Upwork because that is such a fantastic place for freelancers, a lot of writers and artists to get jobs in between, you know, whether it's other jobs or transitioning, just to bring in some income. So how many hours a day do you do work through Upwork? How many hours do you put aside for writing? Well, it depends on my schedule. So I do Upwork in between my publishing schedule. I try to make a schedule usually for the weekdays. I used to work seven days a week and then I sort of hit a burnout period. So now I do Monday through Friday. I wake up at five in the morning, actually, and I work from five to seven. And then I try to get something in in the afternoon during my daughter's nap. And then at night, I pick up whatever else I haven't done. But I've been pretty good. My five to seven in the morning is my prime writing time. I figured that out. How are you able to write consistently, constantly, the entire day, almost every day? 
because you're ghostwriting and then you're also writing your own projects. Do you ever feel like you're running out of steam or ideas or like you're, you know, you run into like, um, almost like brain farts. It's like, Oh gosh, you know, doesn't your head ever hurt from writing? So, cause this is a lot. I've definitely interviewed people who have day jobs that, you know, like Jeff Zentner is a perfect example. He's a prosecutor by day, but writes, you know, in between on the way to work on the bus. So he has like a completely separate break. So it's almost like he's so excited to look forward to writing because that's, that's not what he focuses on for his day job. But for you, you're actually ghostwriting for your work work. And then you're continuing with creative writing and ghostwriting is creative writing too. So how are you able to squeeze out so much creativity? It took a little while to learn. So I've been doing my ghostwriting since 2015 and I went full steam ahead. That's sort of how I work. I picked up a ton of jobs right up front and even some that didn't really pay well, but I was really looking forward to like pushing myself and figuring it out. So I did have a burnout period, I think in 2016, where I was so tired all the time and I didn't feel creative at all. And even in my own work, I took a step back and I figured out a schedule and that's that's tending to be where my brain goes. I have to figure things out on paper first and then I can do that. With my clients on Upwork, they usually send me outlines. So I have a general idea of, of where I'm going. Not everyone gives you an outline, but I've built up my client base where this is how we work. And then I do my own outlining. So I do have my periods of in that morning period of five to seven where I'm not necessarily banging out all the words, but I am outlining, thinking, brainstorming. And then throughout the day, I'm always thinking about stories. I mean, that just tends to be where my brain goes anyway. Gosh, you are so badass. Okay. I'm just like here with my jaw open. I'm like, this is when I kind of wish I could do video interviews so that you could see me with my mouth open. Like, wow, she's amazing. Thank you so much for jumping into that. I think that's really helpful. And also I want everybody to hear about the story you're working on, your work in progress right now. What are you most excited about? Could you give us a bit of a overview? Sure. So this series I've been working on with the same publisher I've been with since 2013, um, HQ Digital. It used to be Karina, but they switched under the HarperCollins branch. So it's a semi-fantasy. It has like a mermaid undertone about three women in this family, that they're two sisters and the mother, and they sort of have a past connected to the mermaids. Um, I don't want to do any spoilers up front, <laughs> but... <laughs> I was approached sort of with the project because I had written fantasy, sort of paranormal in the past for them. And I created this town in Connecticut. It's a vision of my own imagination and these women who live there and sort of their day-to-day struggles and the inciting incident is finding out about their past. So the first book is The Older Sister Rose, Her Point of View. That one just released this year. And I'm currently working on revisions for the younger sister, Reen. I'm also drafting the mother's story, Pearl, now. Oh so my I'm, gosh. I'm in my revision stage for book two and also drafting a book three. So it's a lot of fun. I'm really having a lot of fun with this story. It's different than what I've published under my name before. So it's really great. Oh my God, that's so exciting. So where's the inspiration from? I'm so curious and I'm obsessed with mermaids. You have no idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a Disney kid. so I, I know, you know Little Mermaid, right? You grew up with that too. I love Definitely. that. Oh my gosh. Wait, did you ever watch Splash? 
I have, I think I watched it when I was really young, but I don't remember. <gasps> the one with Tom Hanks? Of, Tom Hanks is in it. Yes, I yes. know that. Oh, my um, God, girl. I used to borrow that from the library every single time. And I would never give it back either. So I would have to pay fines on top of it and then, like, try to borrow it again. And they're just like, oh. But, yes, just letting you know how big of a fan I am of mermaids. So I'm very excited to hear this, your inspiration of where this all came from. Yeah, so I usually set my stories in around New England because that's where I'm from. And it's kind of weird. I sort of like Google mapped Connecticut and I was looking for like coastal towns. And so I found my setting. I'm not basing it on any specific place. I have visions of it in my head. And then with the mermaid stuff, I haven't really gotten into it until more recently. And I'm not going to say why, because I don't want to spoil it. But I'm having so much fun creating my own take on it because I've read mermaid stories in the past. And in one of my books, there's like a paranormal-ish siren in one of them. I'm just having a lot of fun with it. I'm using my imagination. I sort of feel like back for when I used to write paranormal that I can create this whole world and make it my own. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Okay, what is your biggest struggle that you've come across while writing this? Because I know you're saying it's a lot of fun, it's good times, but I'm pretty sure every writer has come into like really rough times too, even if it's just like one scene. Was there one that really stands out to you in particular? Not a scene specifically, but I do have to, as much as I say it is a lot of fun, the first book, Rose's book, was probably the hardest book I've ever written. And I don't really, I can't really pinpoint why. It was just... It's something about the character and I couldn't figure her out. So I went back and I did a lot of brainstorming and I did reverse outlining. A friend of mine, uh, an author friend of mine sort of got me into and I find it a lot of fun. And I was doing a lot of charts just to try to figure it out. My biggest challenge was that first book because it was really setting the stage for the series. So I had to figure out the setting and everything. So I I wanted to do it justice up front. So there were a lot of times where I would just stare at the screen and I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, what comes next. So it just took a lot of back work, I guess. It took a lot of outlining and writing it down and, and just figuring it out. I would also love for listeners to hear what you would love for them to take away from the book after it's done and it's out in the world. What do you hope for them to take away from it? I hope they take away a nice story about family and friendship. In a lot of my books, I deal with fear of something. And in each woman in the story has a fear of something and sort of figuring it out and getting over it while also connecting more with family. So I would say a, a nice story, I think. <laughs> That's what I hope. <laughs> I love that. Okay, let's wrap it up with what are some small manageable steps that you'd advise your fellow listeners to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? Your story really stands out to me and how you're able to balance taking care of your daughter and also doing freelancing work because that's a lot of work. You have to have a really good time management with that and squeezing in writing your books as an author. So do you have any advice on that for your fellow community? In terms of small steps, I would say, you know, this process is so personal to everyone and everyone's situation is different. And I just had, for me, I had to find that sweet spot. So, you know, I went through times where I would write certain points of the day and I figure out which was the best for me. I'm a big scheduler. So I, I had to like figure out timing. And I know that's some advice that a lot of authors give is just finding your time, whether it's 10 minutes a day or two hours, just find your time and 
I think take your time as well. I don't, you know, some people try to rush to the finish line, but I think, you know, you'll, you'll find more creativity when you're in your zone, when you're in your, your sweet spot. I love that. Do you have any tools that you use for time management by any chance? I do. I have an Erin Condren planner, which I've been a huge fan of their planners for years. It's called Planner Peace. You find Planner Peace with your planner. So I've been through a whole bunch of different ones. And I finally found, I use the monthly view for my, I actually use like laminate paper. It's sort of like where you can use dry erase markers on it. I can move it from month to month and figure out my schedule for the week. At the end of the day, I write it in. I write in how many words I did or what I outlined or anything like that. That's been really helpful for visualization of what I'm doing and what I'm going to do for the rest of the week or the month. That has really helped me a lot. Awesome. Where can our listeners find you online? You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. All of these links are on my website if it's easier because they're not all the same. CaitlinDuncan.com. That's awesome. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, listeners, make sure you all go say hi to your fellow storyteller and support her, show her some love. And Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Caitlin, thank you so much for sharing your story and congratulations on winning the contest. I am thrilled our community had the chance to learn more about you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Be sure to head over to Susie's show notes page to download her presentation of her top six favorite query letters along with her notes on why she loves each of them over at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Susie Townsend. And if you'd love to show support for 88 Cups of Tea, please head over to 88 Cups of Tea's Patreon page to learn more about all the different tiers and early access to interviews. Last but not least, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Susie over on Twitter at SZ. Townsend81 or on her Tumblr at suzytownsend.tumblr.com. And please send some love to your fellow storyteller, Caitlin, over on Twitter at K-A-T-L-Y-N underscore D-U-N-C-A-N. Have a great week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.